This morning we will be in Luke chapter 10 as we continue with our Parables of Jesus study. And this, this morning we'll be in Parables of Discipleship part 3. Um, we've looked at three of the parables that deal with the topic of discipleship. Now as I remind you, when we think about discipleship, and particularly Jesus' parables on this topic of discipleship, what Jesus is going to demonstrate to us is what it means to walk with him in his upside-down, inside-out kingdom where everything seems to be turned right-side-up, where the last will be first, the first will be last, and the greatest of all will be the servant of all. So these parables, particularly on discipleship, show us the new principles that should govern, govern our lives as we walk with Jesus by faith. As we walk with Jesus as He is Lord, and we go out into the world with the same love, the same grace, the same mercy, and the same compassion that Jesus has shown us. That's the issue that we give as we have freely been given. That Jesus' mercy, grace, and compassion flows through us towards others. Now this morning we're going to be looking at one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told besides the parable of the prodigal son. And it's the parable of the good Samaritan. Now just like the parable of the prodigal son, everyone has heard the term good Samaritan. In fact, we even have good Samaritan laws based on how popular this parable is. So whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you're a believer, no matter pretty much where you've grown up, especially in, the we in Western civilization, you've heard the term Good Samaritan. So let's turn to Luke 10, and I'll read the text there beginning in verse 25. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25, says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went out and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sat on him, his own, and sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay to you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor 
to the man who fell among robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, I want to break this into three easy points for you to follow. Here's number one. Notice that first, Jesus is put to the test. Look there at verse 25. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. I could insert some kind of lawyer joke here, but I'll refrain. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as a lawyer, Mark calls the man a scribe in his gospel. This man had given his life to the study of the Old Testament law and to its implications. As he's been watching in Luke chapter 10, as he's been watching and listening to Jesus teach, he wants to test Jesus. Now his motive could either be good or bad, right? He could either be seeking to trap Jesus in his words and bring an accusation against him. That would be an evil motive. Or he could have a good motive where he's basically under conviction that Jesus is the only person around here who could actually answer such an important question. That would be a good motive. But in either case, in either case, he wants Jesus to answer this really important question, what might be the most important question in his mind. And he might not know, what he might not know at this moment, is he's asking the most important question to the most important person that's ever walked this earth. Just think about that for a second. He's asking the most important question that he could possibly ask to the most important person that's ever walked the earth. And his question is this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now the rich young ruler in Luke 18 will ask Jesus this same exact question. Bishop J.C. Ryle said of this question, quote, he says, this question deserves the principal attention of every man, every woman, and child on earth. We are all sinners, he goes on to say, dying sinners, and sinners going to be judged after death. How shall our sins be pardoned? Wherewith shall we come before God? How shall we escape the damnation of hell? Whither shall we flee from the wrath to come? What must we do to be saved? These are all inquiries which people of every rank ought to put to themselves and never rest till they find an answer. So think about this. This lawyer asked the question that all of us must find an answer to. What shall we do to inherit eternal life? Now, that said, there is an incredible theological conflict in the question that you might not see at first glance. Look at the question very carefully. And this question goes to the heart of the gospel. Notice his words. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Those two words, do and inherit, are not theologically compatible. Let you chew on that for a minute. What must I do to inherit eternal life? They're not compatible. Paul's entire letter to the Galatians addresses this very issue. And there Paul says this in chapter 2 verse 16. He says, yet we know 
that a person is not justified by works of the law, by doing the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order not to be in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the law. Because by doing the law, no one will be justified. So here's the issue. You cannot earn or work or do anything to inherit eternal life. To inherit something, you have to be an heir. It would be quite humorous for you to come and ask me how can I get some of your inheritance? First of all, I don't have any. You can't do anything to get my inheritance. You have to be a son of my father or a daughter, but he doesn't have any. At least none that I know of. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life, right? That's the point. The point here is that you can't. To inherit something, you must be an heir. You must be born again into God's family through Christ. Abraham became an heir of God through faith, not by keeping the law. And this is why Paul says in Romans 4, he says, The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law or by what he did, but through the righteousness of faith. So here's the question. What does Jesus do with that kind of question? The guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So what does Jesus do? He points to the scriptures, point two. Look there in verses 26 through 28. Notice how personal Jesus makes this. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Notice this. Jesus makes this person culpable for his, for his understanding of the law. Jesus says, how do you understand what the Old Testament says about this. How do you read it? And he says, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, again, do this, and you will live. So he asked Jesus a question, and Jesus asked him a question. All right, Jesus asked the lawyer to find his answer in God's Word. Now, of course, I could stop here and say, Jesus could have simply authoritatively answered his question on his own as the Son of God. Jesus, couldn't have, Jesus could have said, you know what, it doesn't actually matter what you think. I can give you my authoritative word on it. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the very Word of God, according to John 1. I could tell you, but instead... Jesus chooses to answer his question with a question that drives him to the very revelation of God's Word that he's already been given. Now, I'll just say here on the side, we would be wise as Christians to answer most of the questions that our culture raises by doing the same thing. Have you read what God says in his Word? Billy Graham was a master at this. If you watch any of, his, any of his sermons on rerun, he says over and over again, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. That is the issue. Jesus takes him to the scriptures. And so what happens here? What happens? The lawyer answers Jesus by quoting Deuteronomy 6, which is the Jewish Shema, right? Godly households, which you might not know, is godly Jewish household 
households would quote this verse every morning and every evening together. They would hang the Shema on their doors in a little box called a mezuzah. Devout Jews would also wear a box on their foreheads and wrists called a phylactery with a Shema written on it. So this text was central to all of Jewish life. And the lawyer also quotes Leviticus 19.18, by the way, which is interesting because you know what it deals with? In Leviticus, in Leviticus 19.18, that is where God commands all of Israel to love the resident aliens among them, no matter their nationality, just the same way that they would love their Israeli brothers and sisters. So the lawyer implicates himself here by quoting a text that deals with specifically loving strangers and aliens. So these two texts taken together, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, they form what is called the Great Commandment. It actually forms the first half of the mission statement of our church. The greatest commandments in the Bible are to love God and love people. These two scriptures summarize the entire Ten Commandments. The first four deal with loving God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have idols. You're going to appear before me in worship. The last six deal with loving your neighbors. Don't steal, murder, kill, commit adultery, things like that. Those harm neighbors, those made in God's image. So these two verses perfectly encapsulate the Ten Commandments. And the issue here is that those two things cannot be separated. You cannot love God without loving people. They cannot be separated. You cannot separate loving God from loving people made in His image. And this double truth is always linked together for Christ's followers. The Apostle John writes in his letter, he says this in 1 John 4, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. They are connected. Jesus applauds this lawyer for his correct answer. And he tells them, do this and he will live. So here's the point. Keeping the law can only be done. Keeping the law can only be done out of a heart that loves God and loves people made in his image. But here's the problem. You need to keep this in, in your mind this whole way through this text. Here's the problem. None of us have a heart to do that in our fallen sinful nature. None of us can do what is commanded here when Jesus says, do this and you will live. That is a theological impossibility. And here we're told, look there in verse 29, we're told after Jesus tells him this, after Jesus says, you've answered correctly, love God and love your neighbor, do this and you will live, do this and you will have eternal life. And we're told there in verse 29 that the lawyer isn't satisfied with Jesus' response. Look what it says. It says, but desiring to justify himself, he asks, well, who is my neighbor, Jesus? So he wants to justify himself before Jesus. He wants to prove his own self-righteousness and goodness. Just like in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you remember that parable where the, where the Pharisee thanks God for all of his goodness and righteousness while the tax collector just beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said in that parable... Only one man went home justified, and it wasn't the Pharisee. And in this text, guess what? It won't be the lawyer. And I want to say here that this is what 
self-justifying legalism always does. It always wants to prove and justify yourself apart from Jesus and His grace. I'm good enough in and of myself. I can parse out the terms and meet the demands of the law all by myself without any regard for Jesus or His grace and mercy towards the undeserving. So what does he do? He asked Jesus this other question, right? Jesus says, do this and live. And he says, well, Jesus, <laughs> seeking to justify myself. Well, Jesus, you can hear the kind of snarkiness in his tone, maybe. Well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And I'll add here that to ask that question, who is my neighbor, to simply ask that question is to admit that you do not obey the great commandment. To ask the question is to admit that you don't do it. Let's chew on that for a second. To just ask the question, who is my neighbor, is to admit that you don't obey the great commandment to love God and love people. Right? Now, there is no doubt in this scribe or in Jesus which commandments are the greatest. There's no question in the Old Testament these two are the sum of all the 600 plus commands in the Old Testament. That's not the question. The question from the lawyer is to what extent the command should be obeyed. That's the real question. The question isn't which commandments are the greatest. The question is to what extent do I have to obey that command? You see, we all want boundaries. We all want qualifiers and caveats from Jesus about the extent of our love towards others. And Jesus offers none. We fill our minds with questions like this. Think about all these questions that appear in the scriptures. We fill our minds with questions like this. How many times should I forgive, Jesus? How many times? Jesus, give me a limit. Jesus, can't I simply limit my love for those who love me in return? What about my enemies, Jesus? Do I have to love them? What about those that persecute me? What about this? What about that? What about, what about, what about? What we're doing is we're trying to seek a qualifier to the command that says, love God and love people. And Jesus offers none. And I'll say here, had this lawyer responded positively to Jesus' answer, had he taken Jesus' answer as it was and not sought to justify himself, he probably would have heard the gospel and had an opportunity to respond to Jesus. Instead, number three, what does Jesus do? He provides a parable. So Jesus is put to the test, he points to the scriptures, and then he provides a parable, which is called the parable of the Good Samaritan. I won't read it again. Very simple story. It's very memorable, isn't it? A man was on a journey down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. They beat him, leaving him half dead. And along came that way a priest who saw him, went to the other side of the road, and kept going. Just like him, a Levite came, saw him, went to the other side, and kept going. But a Samaritan came to where he was and was moved with compassion. Put him on his own animal, bound up his wounds, took him to an inn, paid for him to stay several days, and said, whatever is lacking, I will come back and pay for. You see to it that he is made well. Jesus says, which of those three proved to be a neighbor? What you need to know is that from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho, this, 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 uh, this, um, 
this journey that Jesus speaks of here from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles. It was a drop of about 3,500 feet in elevation or over basically 200 foot a kilometer. The road was notorious for bandits and robbers. All the way winding down to Jericho. This road was dangerous. You also need to know that Jericho was home to about half of the 24 orders of priests who served one week at a time at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus says that the man making this journey, he was attacked, beaten, and left for half dead. Again, the first person by is a priest, presumably coming home from temple service. He's coming home from temple service, and he crosses, sees the man, crosses the road, leaves him there. A Levite, also from the religious class who helped at the temple, saw the man pass by on the other side, Surely, surely, these two men would have known the requirements of the law to help those in need. Surely, right? A, a priest raised in the priestly class, a Levite who's, who had temple service duties as well, surely they would have known the command to care for those that are in this situation. After all, they know the law better than most. But Jesus says, Jesus tells this lawyer he says but a Samaritan that's the last thing he would have wanted to hear a Samaritan a despised half-breed from when the Jews intermarried with the occupying Assyria Assyrians centuries earlier who was considered an unclean outcast to the fact that if a Samaritan shadow fell on you you would be deemed unclean and could not offer temple services who was thought of as a religious heretic because they had their own temple in Samaria and the Jews had the temple of Jerusalem, who had their own copy of their own modified copy of the Pentateuch that the Jews thought was heresy. So this guy, this half-breed, despised, unclean outcast who is a heretic, Jesus said, came to where he was. The other two simply came and saw the place. They saw him and left. But the Samaritan came to the man where he was, was moved with compassion, and his compassion moved him to care for the man's needs out of his own resources and to ensure his well-being and recovery. Now, let me just say a few things here about the Samaritan. This Samaritan the hero of the story, this outcast, this Samaritan wasn't detoured, wasn't deterred. He didn't take a detour either. He wasn't deterred by his own social standing in Israel as an unwanted outcast. Well, this Jewish fellow, presumably the man that fell among thieves, was most likely Jewish. This man doesn't want my help because I'm a Samaritan. He wasn't deterred by his own social standing in Israel. He wasn't deterred by the nationality or the religious preference of the victim. Nor was he deterred by the rampant racism that was known between the Jews and the Samaritans. Nor was he captive to his own innate possible prejudices. I'll say this about the Samaritan too. You can write this one down. He wasn't deterred by his busy schedule or his need to get somewhere urgently. 
It would be far reading into the text to think that this good Samaritan simply walked up and down this road looking for people who had been beaten by robbers. He's going about his business when he comes upon this man. He's not deterred by his busy schedule. I'll say this, he's also not deterred by the possible danger of the robbers possibly still lurking nearby. They couldn't have gone far, they just left this man half dead. He also didn't call the church. You need to take care of that. By the way, that happens. He didn't call the church. He didn't consult with his pastor. I'll say this too. He didn't start an organization or a movement to help people who were lost in the roadside on the ditch, as good as that might be. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but he didn't do that. You know what else he didn't do? He didn't publicize his ministry on social media to virtue signal to the world that he's doing great deeds among the Jewish population. That's not what he did. You know what else he didn't do? He didn't quiz the man on whether or not he put himself in danger and deserved what he got. Well, maybe he provoked the fight. Well, maybe he should have known not to travel alone down this road at night. Maybe he shouldn't have been traveling with such rich apparel. Isn't this your fault? He didn't do any of those things. This is what he did. He was simply going his way and saw a man in need, and out of compassion, he met that need. That is a very simple principle of ministry. Write this down. See a need, meet a need. Don't consult me. Don't ask if you have permission. Don't look around and question everything else that's going on around. If God puts somebody in your path that needs help and needs to be ministered to, meet the need. See a need, meet a need. Or as one of my t-shirts that I bought in, in, uh, in Haiti says, love people, ask questions later. You don't ask questions first. You meet a need. This man obviously needs help. He's beaten, lying dead, almost in the street. Listen, all of us would do well to operate our daily lives under that very principle. This is how Jesus works in the world. This is how he works through your life. Your life takes a thousand different twists and turns, and you never know where God puts you in a certain place at a certain time to meet a certain need according to his grace, according to the provision that he's given you, and that is how you see God at work. How many of us are guilty of cutting off the work of God in our lives because we determine our own schedule instead of letting God interrupt our schedule by showing us what needs to be done in the moment? That's ministry, people. You can't plan everything in ministry. It happens in our day-to-day lives. College students, future college students, future you guys, you graduates, you don't get to do that and go, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve Jesus when I get out of college, or I'm going to serve Jesus when I get out of high school. I'm going to plan all of the ministry Jesus is going to do through me. You don't get to do that. I don't get to do that. Jesus can wreck my day anytime he wants, and that's okay because it's worth it. So let me conclude this way. I don't want to go long this morning. Let me conclude this way. Having told this parable with the worst of all possible heroes in the mind of this lawyer, Jesus now presses home his question to this self-justifying scribe. Which of the three do you think? Notice Jesus goes back to him. He says, how do you read the law? And which of these these three do you think? You don't get to answer in the abstract. Who is the neighbor? 
Answer the question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? And what Jesus does is brilliant. There is no escape. The lawyer expected a nice religious theological debate about the word, what the word neighbor means in Scripture. Well, Jesus, can't we just argue what it means to be a neighbor in the Scripture? Can't we argue about that? That's what he wanted. He wanted to exegete the meaning of the word to remove any obligation or requirement to actually love others. Now Jesus has him on the hook. Let me say here, the point here is that Jesus won't allow us to think of neighbor as an abstract object to be debated. Out there in the ether. Well, who is my neighbor out there in the ether in this philosophical talk where it never matters in real life? Jesus says neighbor is not an abstract object to be debated. A neighbor must be flesh and blood. A flesh and blood person that you can lay your hands on. A real, tangible person made in the image of God. And again, like this lawyer, many of us here want to know who we can limit our obligation to. The lawyer was happy to limit his obligation to those who were Jewish, to those who were part of his religious family, The issue here is that we have to love without boundary or qualification or exception. Jesus is far more radical than most of us would dare think. Even me. Jesus is more radical than I would even think. Jesus doesn't ask the lawyer, listen to this, Jesus doesn't ask the lawyer, who should I love? That's not the question. Jesus simply asks this, do you love? Not who, do you love? Do you love and it doesn't show up in your actions? Listen, if you actually love like God, you don't worry about limitations or boundaries. Now the lawyer's forced to answer. He's forced to answer. The neighbor is the one who showed mercy. So Jesus doesn't allow us to escape into the cover of religiosity or talk. True religion is to love God and love people. They cannot be separated or disconnected from each other. Christianity is a relational religion, and love is always accompanied by mercy and sacrifice, almost always at great cost to the one who loves. What did it cost God to love the world? His Son. He didn't say it, He showed it. He did what was required. And that is my point. The Apostle John, who heard this exchange in this parable, writes in his letter, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Jesus drives it home. Notice what Jesus, how Jesus ends. Same thing he's already said. You go and do likewise. But as I said, the whole problem in this text is that no one can. No one can do that. At least no one who hasn't met Jesus. 
who hasn't had a heart transplant by Jesus. So you see, you must come to Christ for a new heart and a new nature in order to love others in the way that you have been loved in Jesus. Your identity has to be changed in order for this to naturally flow out of you towards others. The Bible says, to, to use a phrase by Billy Graham again, the Bible says we love because he first loved us. The Bible says that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he has given us. So until you meet Jesus, you cannot and will not love like him because he is not living and loving through you. So the point of this text, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is lay down your life to the one standing in front of you. Give your life to Jesus and let him radically transform your life so that his love flows through you towards others. Because that's the only way it can happen. Then eternal life will be present in your life. This morning I want to pray for us. But that's going to be the purpose of our, of our invitation this morning. If you don't know Jesus, this isn't just some moral story. Go and help people on the street. This is do you know Jesus? Because this is about your identity in Christ. If you know Jesus, this will naturally show up in your life. You'll live this out. But if you don't know Jesus, you must come to him in repentance and faith. If you're looking for a church home, come and unite with us. Maybe God is calling some of you in here into full-time ministry where this is the life you live. The love and mercy you've received, you're going to spend the rest of your life living that out towards others. Whatever the Lord's calling you to do, let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak clearly through your word to us. And Father, above all else, may Jesus be glorified. We ask this in his name. Amen.